morning. Again, I feel like we've already covered a lot of territory this morning. <laughs> I feel like we've already had a lot happen this morning. But it's always exciting to bring the Word of God, and I'm glad that you're here, and I'm grateful that you're here. And I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little odd to you at first, or sound a little shocking to you at first, and it doesn't sound right, but I want you to hear it in the spirit in which I intend it. (laughs) Stephen's ready for this one, yeah. Uh, When Krista and I were first married, I would say that I worshipped her, which I think probably sounds weird to hear me say, but I think in the true sense of the word, that's accurate, and here's, I've already talked to her about this, she knows I'm going to share this, so, but here's, here's why I would say this, because you might say, what, why, why would you say that? Here's why. Here's something that I think would illustrate this for you. When we were, uh, we hadn't been married very long, and I woke up in the morning, and I, I was thinking, as I was thinking many mornings, what can I do today that would be really special for Krista? What could I do that would make her really happy? But this particular morning, I articulated that to her. What could I do today for you that would just make you really happy, that would just make your day? And she said, bring home a puppy. <clears throat> so here's what happened next. I went to work. I spent my lunch break pouring through the recycler. After work, I drove to East LA to a very sketchy little house, and I bought a puppy. I bought a German Shepherd. It cost 50 bucks. That's about the condition this dog was in. <clears throat> and I brought it home. And at the time, Krista was working evening, so you should have seen the look on her face when she walked in to the backyard and found me with this dog. It was the kind of look that said, you thought I was serious. <laughs> I think she was a little serious, but she didn't think I'd really do it, but I did. I changed my whole day around it. I went and got her a dog because I adored her. I loved her. I I just wanted her to be happy, and I was willing to restructure my day. The truth was, I was really willing to restructure my life around her happiness. I was really willing to do that because I loved her, because she was the most important thing in the world to me, which I see as a real problem now. Because I see what that really is, is worship. What that really is, is misplaced worship. It's not that I don't love and adore my wife now, and it's not that I don't want her to be happy. But my worship was in the wrong place. And here's the question. For many of us, it it may be a spouse, or it may be someone you're dating. Who do you worship? That's the question. Maybe um, Maybe it's not either of those. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's somebody that you admire, that you just, you care the most about what they think about you, you value them the most, you place the greatest worth on them, and you're willing to structure your whole life around that. You're willing to set all your priorities, you're willing to set your agenda around that person. Maybe it's not a person for you, maybe it's more of an idea, or maybe it's a thing. So maybe, maybe it's um, success which is more of a concept, but it's success in the workplace or it's success at school. And you're willing to structure your entire life around making sure that you, you have success in that area. Maybe that's not what it is for you. Maybe it's your, just your career in general. Maybe it's, it's wealth. You'll do anything to accumulate wealth. 
maybe you would never say that it's wealth. You'd say that it's comfort. You just want to be comfortable. You just want to live a comfortable life. Maybe for you it's security. I don't need a lot of stuff. I just know, need to know that I'm going to be okay. And so I'm going to serve these idols in my life. I'm going to worship these other things. I'm going to set my whole life up around these things to make sure that I have those things in place because that's what's most important to me. So the question for us is, who do you worship? That's the question that we're going to be asked from the text this morning, I believe, on a very broad level. Who do you worship? And the question for you is, how would I know? How would I know that who you say you worship is who you actually worship? Because I can tell you the story of why why I think this was true, why I think I worship Krista, because I set my whole agenda around her happiness. I set my priorities around that. If we're honest, the answer is probably ourselves. Who do you worship? Me. Whose happiness am I most concerned about? My own. Who do I want to wake up every morning thinking about, thinking, how do I make this person happy? How do I make me happy? That's kind of that's a hard one to combat against. I place the greatest value on me. I make all my decisions and base my priorities on me. We know that's not the right answer because we're in church right now. We know that the right answer is Jesus. And that is the right answer. Jesus is the right answer to this question of who should I worship? Who should I place the greatest worth or value on? So we want to say it's Jesus, and maybe if we were to ask each other, we would say it's Jesus, because we know that's what we're supposed to say, and I hope that's true for us. But if I were to watch you for a while, how would I know that that's true? That's the question. How would I know that it's Jesus? And if we just had a way to look into your life, or to look into your heart, or to look into your mind right now, or yesterday, or this past week, Would I believe you if you told me that I worship Jesus? Would I believe you? Here's the thing. If the answer is not Jesus, there's a real problem. If Jesus is not who we worship, we have a real problem. We have a problem of misplaced worship. Because Jesus is the only one that is worthy of that. He's the only one that's worthy of that. And I think that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. We're going to continue in our study of the, series, of the book of Acts this morning. And before we open the word, which we're going to do now, I would just ask if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're about to open your word. And as we've just sung this song, we would ask that you're, you would speak through your word this morning. Lord, we want to worship you. We understand that we ought to worship you. We know that you are the thing of greatest value. We want to believe that, but we want our lives to reflect that, and they don't always. So would you help us to worship you, and Lord, would you also help us to get rid of those things in our life that are keeping us from true and genuine worship of you? We want you to be praised. We want you to be valued above all else. We know that's right. So would you help us to see that this morning through your word? We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19 this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, we have them here in the aisle, and you can grab one, or if you raise your hand, we'll just pass one down to you. You're welcome to listen. If you don't want to do that, just listen along. But I would encourage, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take this home with you. They're they're a gift for you, so please take them. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. That's going to be page 928 of our Bibles here. We're going to pick up where we've left off. Now, this is a story, maybe some of you have heard some of these stories before. 
two different narrative accounts that we're going to hear this morning. And that on the face of it, you're going to wonder, why are you talking about worship? This isn't really about worship. But I think the whole passage is really telling us something about genuine worship and about misplaced worship. And I'm hoping we can see that this morning through this passage. We're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 19, and it says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I want to stop there for a minute, because you might need to read that again, because that is pretty bizarre. And when I read that, I know it's the Word of God, so I know I'm supposed to believe it, but when I read that, that sounds crazy. Because when I read something like that and I think about it, my initial response is, I want to reject that. That sounds a little witch doctory to me. There are literally people taking items that have touched Paul and take them to someone else and they're healed, or an evil spirit is cast out of them. It doesn't even sound biblical on the face of it. And we're in a city called, a city called Ephesus where magic and mystical things, and they have, they have huge control. People believe in all of these mystical powers and magical things and incantations. And it seems confusing to me. Why would God work this way? But I want you to look at something really closely. In verse 11, who is the subject of the sentence? It's God. God is the subject, not Paul. This is not the story of Paul and his magical handkerchief. This is the story of God. And look what it says. It said, God was doing these things by the hands of Paul. We're seeing extraordinary things happening through a regular guy. That should sound familiar to you if you've been with us through this study of Acts. This is a story about what God is doing. God can do whatever he wants, and in this case, he's authenticating his power and his authority over disease and over evil spirits through Paul and his ministry in every way possible. That's what this looks like. So, let's continue reading. Then, verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So I know you all know what itinerant Jewish exorcists are. (laughs) There's just some crazy stuff in here. These are guys going around from town to town, village to village. In Ephesus, it may be that they're just going from place to place within the city because it's a huge place. That are going around basically rendering spiritual services, exorcisms, healings, that kind of thing. They see what God is doing through Paul, and they're like, well, that might work for us. And so they claim that same power, but here's the problem. They don't claim to know Jesus. They don't claim to have the Holy Spirit. They just say, I would like to perform this exorcism by way of the Jesus that Paul is talking about. And you might expect that's not going to work. And that's true. Verse 14 Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What happens here in this story is actually quite remarkable. These seven guys enter a house to confront a man who has an evil spirit in him. And they use this strategy of using the name of Jesus because they've seen that that's working and it's powerful. And the response from the demon is actually quite scary and it's actually quite helpful for us because he said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, who are you guys? That's the response. It's almost like smart aleck. You don't just throw around the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not like a magic spell or an incantation that just makes things happen. What's happening through Jesus and through Paul, it's not the name Jesus that's important. It's the identity of the person that's claiming it. Jesus can heal and can cast out spirits because he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is Lord. Paul has the authority to do this because he's been given that authority by God. Through the Holy Spirit, God is working through him to authenticate the power and the authority of the name of Jesus. God has given that identity to Paul. And so the Spirit's They know Jesus, they tremble at Jesus, and they know Paul because they know that God is working through him, but they're like, who are you? You don't know Jesus. You can't claim him. It's not the name, it's the identity. It's the fact that you're identified with God. So what the Spirit is essentially saying is, Jesus has authority here, Paul has authority here because it's been given to him by God, you don't have any authority here. And just to show you that you have no authority here, here's what I'm going to do. And the man who's possessed jumps on these seven men and overpowers them by himself. He says, I will show you who has power and authority. It's me because you are defenseless against this, against me in this place. I feel like what we're seeing here is something that we we don't experience in everyday life. For the people of Ephesus, a spiritual encounter might be something that they expect. But for us, this is so far removed from us. But here's what's happening. There is a real spiritual power. There is real spiritual power. Jesus is not a magic word. And the power of the spiritual realm and the power and authority of the name of Jesus and the importance of being identified with him are all on display in this situation, in this encounter. Here's the result of what happens with these seven sons of Sceva. This is what happens in Ephesus. The name of Jesus is known, the name of Jesus is feared, and the name of Jesus is praised. How do we know that? Look here with me. It says, um, Luke tells us that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. This encounter, what just happened, became known to everybody. Everybody knows that there's real power and authority to the name of Jesus, but they know that there's something more to it than just calling on the name of Jesus. It says the name of Jesus is feared. It says fear fell upon them all. 
they all understand that this is a real thing with real consequences, that there's real power being played around with here. This is not a game. And that the name of Jesus is praised. Luke tells us the name of the Lord was extolled. That's what's happening in Ephesus, but look what happens to the believers. The believers in Ephesus, the result for them is repentance. How we see them respond to this is to repent. Why are they repenting? And what are they repenting of? We've talked about the city of Ephesus being a city that is like overrun with magic and the mystical practices and all of those kinds of things. When the people see who has real power and who has real authority, what do they do? They take all of those other things that they've been trusting in, all of those other things that they hold on to, all of those other things that they believe in or worship, and they're like, you know what? We don't need these anymore. (laughs) We don't need this stuff anymore. We've got the real thing. For the believers, they say, hey, I am identified with Jesus. I am identified with the king. I'm identified, I'm associated with that real power, that real authority. And you know what? I don't need this stuff anymore. And so not only do I not need it, I need to confess it and say, I've been trusting in this stuff that has no real power, no real authority. I have misplaced my trust. I have misplaced the worth of these things. I have misunderstood the value of God, the power and authority of Jesus. And so my worship has been divided at best or misplaced at worst. And so I'm going to take all these things and I'm going to burn them. Now, what Luke tells us is that they're burning something of real value here. 50,000 pieces of silver, I think is what it says, which is the equivalent of 50,000 days wages. So that's just like the annual salary of about 140 people. That's a lot of money. This is not a trivial thing. This is a serious repentance. And when we say repentance, we mean turning away from. That's what the word means. I'm saying I'm no longer going to trust in these things. I'm no longer going to put stock or value in these things, even though they're worth a lot of money. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to worship the real thing. Because Jesus has been shown to have real power and real authority here over real things, over real spiritual powers. So we see in this case, I believe, with the believers in Ephesus, genuine worship. Genuine worship where their hearts are turned to God to say, I will no longer trust in anything else. I'll put full value on Jesus. I'm going to put my full trust in him. That's what the confession and the repentance is about. Luke tells us at the end of that little episode that the word of God continues to increase and prevail. The gospel continues to go out and continues to win people over. Well, no wonder if this is the kind of stuff that's happening. Because things that people have trusted in for so long are being shown to be empty. And Jesus, the real thing, is is being shown to have real power and real authority. So Luke says the gospel continues to work in spite of opposition. And then he tells us, about another episode here that takes place in verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul is making plans for the future. He's been in Ephesus for two years, a little more than two years now. And he's ready to move on. So he's making plans. In fact, he's putting things in motion for himself to move on. He sends Timothy away to kind of prepare 
And it says he's made these plans in the Spirit. With the help of the Holy Spirit, he knows what his next steps are. And then this happens. Look with me in verse 23. About that time, about the same time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. I have to stop here just in case that wording is confusing to you because Luke has done this a lot and it's confusing to me. I have no idea why he does this, but if you were to go up to someone this morning and offer them a donut and they said, oh no thanks, I had no little breakfast this morning, I'm stuffed. Like, you would think, that is the weirdest way to say that ever. You mean you had a big breakfast, right? Not, I had a no little breakfast. That's exactly what just happened. (laughs) He said, there's no little disturbance concerning the way, and he brought no little business to the craftsmen. So let me just translate that for you. It was a big disturbance, and he brought big business. I don't know why it's written this way. I don't know if it just translates that way from the Greek Clint would know. Clint Arnold will know. So you can all ask him afterward. And <laughs> Sorry, Clint. You're going to have not a few people come and ask you about that. <laughs> As Luke would say. Okay. So here's the thing. There's going to be a big disturbance because this guy does big business with a lot of people in Ephesus. That's what's about to happen. And if you have a headline here in your Bible, you're going to see the headline of this is a riot in Ephesus. And that's what we're about to see. Verse 25, it continues, These he gathered together, these craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I want you to remember that phrase, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He continues, verse 28. Sorry, I lost it. Here we are. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Things are getting a little out of hand here because of Demetrius. Demetrius um, has started what initially was like a protest, which has now turned into a riot, a massive group of people chanting and screaming, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. A lot of them don't know why they're there, but they're pretty worked up about it anyway because it says they chant this for two hours straight. I like sports. I go to a lot of sporting events. It is really hard to get people to chant anything for a couple of minutes, but if you get them really worked up, 
You can get them a chance something for a couple of minutes, but for two hours, that is, that is crazy. This is really intense. And what you have is Paul's friends, the disciples saying, Paul, you can't go in there. You even have government officials who are friends of Paul, the Asiarchs, saying, Paul, you can't go in there. You have, this, is, this is crazy. It's way, way out of hand. And if you go in there, you're going to get yourself killed. That's the scale of what's going on. That's probably about the size of it, too. It's like a sporting event, like what you would see at maybe Staples Center. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of people in this huge theater. And what are they upset about? Well, Demetrius is upset because a bunch of people in almost all of Asia, as he puts it, are being persuaded by Paul. They're being persuaded by Paul that gods made with hands are not gods. And Demetrius is in the business of making gods with his hands. And that's a real problem for him. And not only is his business and his lifestyle being threatened by this, but also his God. He says, also Artemis is in danger here. Her reputation is at risk. And this is a goddess who is worshipped by the whole city. So he can rile people up saying that we need to rise up and defend the reputation of Artemis, who is being, her name is being drugged through the mud. They're upset because they're losing business as people turn away from the worship of a fake god to worship the real thing. That's what's actually happening here, but Demetrius doesn't quite put it that way. And even he says something. I asked you to look at that phrase. He says, she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. That's his concern. And what is he saying? What he's saying is, we have all misplaced our worship. He just doesn't know he's saying that. He's saying we're all worshiping the wrong thing. All of Asia and the world have misplaced their worship. And some people are starting to catch on, and some people are starting to worship the real thing. And that's a threat to us. That's a threat to my way of life. Because I've built my life around my business and around my wealth and around my fake God, and no one is going to come in here and tell me I need to change what I'm doing. What does that look like for us? Because here's the question. We're talking about who do you worship? I've asked you that question this morning. Maybe you've even identified in your mind, this is the person, or this is the thing, or this is the idea that sets my values for me. This is the person or the idea or the thing around whom I prioritize my whole life. I'm willing to restructure my life around that thing. And if it's not Jesus, that's a problem. We've kind of stated that already. But even as we talk about it this morning, you are less inclined to repent of that and you're more inclined to just hold on more tightly to it and say, don't you dare take that away from me. Because here's the thing. It can look like really good stuff. A spouse, your kids... Who in here is not willing to restructure their whole life around their kids? We value them. We put huge worth on them. Do we put too much on them and detract from the glory of God? And as you hear this, you start thinking, don't, no, you can't go there. Don't go there. Have you misplaced your worship? And how will you respond? Because I think what we see from the text this morning are there are two possible responses. I can repent or I can rebel. When I'm confronted with my misplaced worship, I can turn from it and I can say, God, I have put these things on the same 
I've given them the same value that I've given you, or I've given them more value than I've given you, and I'm going to give them up. And it's going to cost me something. There's a real cost to that, but I'm going to give it up because I believe you're the real thing. That's worship. Saying, I attribute worth and value to God more than anyone else, and everything else fades in comparison. That's what it looks like. Or I'm going to be confronted with those things, and I'm going to say, nope, I'm just going to hold on to them. Even if I know they have no eternal value, even if I know there's no real power or authority there. This is a really interesting story, the story of Demetrius, because what we see throughout Acts is all these amazing stories of God doing something incredible. Or we see a story of Paul. He's just going to stick his nose in anyway, and he's going to get himself beat up or stoned or thrown in jail or run out of town or something like that. This story here, Acts chapter 19, is a really boring ending. Here's what happens. The city clerk gets up and he says, Hey guys, what are you all riled up about? We all know Artemis is the god of Ephesus, so they're not wrong. They haven't said anything against Artemis. You're wrong, if anyone's wrong, because you're probably going to be charged with rioting. You guys should probably go home. And they go, okay. (laughs) That's the end of the chapter. They just go home. Paul doesn't get beat up. Paul doesn't get stoned. An angel doesn't show up and blind them all so they can't riot anymore. None of that. And what we see is just like we saw in Corinth. It's the government that protects the gospel. It's the city clerk who stands up and says, you guys can't do this. If you have a problem, take them to court. Go home. All right. The government steps in and protects the gospel. God is at work to spread the gospel. Despite opposition, it continues to prevail. That's what Luke tells us. The gospel continues to go out because it's the real thing. Because you can't stop it. Just as we saw really early on in the book of Acts, he said, hey guys, be careful. When the Jews were debating, what do we do with these guys? He said, be careful, you might find, your way standing in, you might find yourself standing in the way of God. So be careful. If God's not in it, it'll die. And that's true. Guess what? Didn't die because God's in it. Here's the question I have for us this morning. It's the same question I asked you at the beginning. I'd ask if you would take out your connection card, actually, at the moment. This is where we'd love to ask you to respond to what you've heard this morning, to the Word of God on that connection card, or be able to share with us something that you're going through, something that you're struggling with. Here's the thing. Jesus is the only one that's worthy of our worship. My wife is not worthy of my worship. She's worthy of my love. She's worthy of my protection. She's worthy of all those things. She's not worthy of my worship. God's the only one. He's the only one. That's just true. That's a true statement. But I'll qualify it for you just in case. What makes us say that? That he's the one of true value, of true authority, of true power. Just like the sons of Sceva, those seven brothers, we are all faced with a problem that we can't solve. We are all faced with a problem that we have no power to overcome. And we're going to try and go in there and do it ourselves, and we're going to find ourselves getting beat up and running out of the house naked, and everyone's going to know about it. That's the story of the sons of Sceva. We're faced with the same problem. We have rebelled against a God who is the only one that has the power to save us. He's the only one that can save us. That's the irony, and he's the one that we've rebelled against. So how, what's going to happen now? You know the story. We talk about it all the time. God loves us anyway. God sent Jesus to save us anyway, despite our rebellion. He said, I will 
Live the life you can't live. I will die the death that you're supposed to die. I will raise my son from the dead to demonstrate my power and authority over death itself. I have conquered it for you. And now I offer you an invitation into my family. Because Jesus absorbed the consequences of our sin on the cross. And because God demonstrated his power over death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to be called a child of God. That's what we would call the gospel. That's what some would call the great exchange. If you've ever heard that phrase used before. But where Jesus trades his life for yours. And then he trades your crummy future of death and separation from God for a future of real hope living with God in eternity. That's the great exchange. That's what we see happening here. So in light of that, let me ask you the question again, because that's all true. Who do you worship? Who is the one who has the greatest value and the greatest worth? The one who you're willing to set your agenda and your priorities around? The one that you're willing to structure your day and your life around? Who gets that privilege from you? The God you rejected, who in his love saved you anyway because he's the only one who has the power to do it, or something else. And I would defy you to come up with something better. I would say to us as the church this morning as we close, we want to wake up thinking about Jesus We want to wake up thinking about him and saying, how can I please you today? What can I do that would make your day? That's what I'm looking for because that's who I worship. And if he gives me an assignment, then I will restructure my day. I will restructure my life around it because I worship him because he's the thing of greatest worth or greatest value. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are identified with him. You're associated with him like Paul. See, that power and authority is available to us as followers of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him and you don't have a relationship with him, then you're like those seven brothers. You have no identity in Christ. You have no association to him. And he's saying, I'm inviting you to be a part of my family. Won't you come and be a part of my family? That's where the real thing is. Turn from the things that you're worshiping and worship me. I'm the only thing worthy of of your worship. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're worthy of our worship and our praise. And we pray that our lives would reflect that. We pray that that would be true of us. Lord, your word says that if we openly declare that Jesus is Lord and we confess in our heart that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. Lord, it's a simple thing to turn to you and to trust in you and to make you the object of our worship. So I just pray this morning that for those of us who call ourselves followers of you, who do not truly, genuinely worship you, but are worshiping other things, I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that we would confess those things now. That even now we would write those things down, we would, we would pray those things to you, we would confess and repent of those things. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, Lord, I would ask that they would turn to you, the object of true worship, that they might declare that you are Lord and believe in their heart that you raised your son Jesus from the dead and invited 
them into your family that they would do that this morning. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.